2 Timothy 2.13, the Apostle Paul writes, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. Isn't that a great promise? That if we're in Christ, that, that God is faithful uh, to us, it's not based on our faithfulness, it's based on his faithfulness. Uh, a famous preacher from back in the 1600s, uh, his name's Samuel Rutherford, he was Scottish. He said, uh, I love this quote, he said, often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me, but blessed be his name, he keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. And I can just tell you, if you have a relationship with God, that's your testimony in a nutshell. It's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on the faithfulness of God. Now, last week in the, the book of Esther, we looked at, at the big idea of the book that God is connecting the dots of, uh, of our lives to bring about his sovereign will in his lives. Because he's gracious, because he's sovereign, because he's uh, providential, he's a good God, that he is working things out, that he's putting things together, he's uh, guiding us to uh, doing things, his unseen hand, working behind the scenes uh, to bring about his plan uh, for our lives. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to get into kind of the why behind the what. We're going to talk about why God works uh, this way. And once again, it's not because of our faithfulness. It's not because, uh, you know, we're always coloring within the lines, so to speak. It's not because we're connecting all the dots. We're going here, there, and everywhere a lot of times. But the good news is, is that God is still faithful. And, and so, um, you know, as we look at Esther and, and, and as we approach this book, um, you know, I said last week the, the name of God is never even used in the book. But I'm going to preach the gospel today from the book of Esther because it's there. All of Scripture is about Jesus. I mean, we could kind of moralize this, and we could talk about uh, some life lessons, you know. We could talk about, you know, Asher Harris shouldn't have treated his wife the way he did by telling her to come out and put on a beauty show for everybody. And we could talk about Haman's pride and Mordecai's pride and uh, this, that, and the other. But that's not the point of it. All the Bible is about Jesus. And so that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about today is, you know, why you know, God works this way in our lives. And, and then next week, we're going to talk about how that, that we live this out. But, you know, when you think about the story, one of the keys to understanding it is to remember why they were in Persia, why they were in exile, why, why they were in captivity. And it was because as, as a nation, as a people, the Jews, God's chosen people, had responded to him in unbelief. And they had responded to him with idolatry so many times. They wandered away from him. And what we're going to see, once again, God had not forsaken them. God was being faithful to them. That's why he preserved them. That's why he saved them. Because in God's sovereign will, Israel is God's chosen people. He has a plan uh, for them 
that will last throughout eternity. Nothing's going to change that. But remember, sovereign will, moral will, they have violated God's moral will. And so there were consequences. God was disciplining them. Because Scripture is very clear. This is how God's ordered and designed the universe that our sins will find us out, that we reap what we sow. That's what's happening uh, to them here. And even if you look at the seeming heroes of the story, Esther and Mordecai, uh, it seems as though to me that Esther and Mordecai did not start this book out as spiritual giants. Um, You know, they were not openly practicing their faith. They were hiding their Jewishness. And in order to do that, there were certain commands from the law that they would certainly have had to disobey. I mean, they weren't openly living out their faith. But God was faithful. God was faithful. Because when you think about uh, the story, uh, one of the kings, King Xerxes, a Greek name, one of his key advisors, Haman, wanted to destroy the Jews. And if you remember Mordecai, and maybe some of this had to do with spiritual reasons, but it seems to me that a lot of it was just his pride. He didn't want to bow down, uh, didn't want to pay homage in some way, show respect uh, to Haman. And so Haman got ticked off, and he thought, well, I can't just take Mordecai out. I'm going to take his people out. I'm going to take the, the Jews out. And so he got the king to sign off on this plot to kill all of the Jews uh, Mordecai uh, heard about it, and you know God had sovereignly, providentially, even through some difficult circumstances, you know placed Esther as the queen, and Esther lays her life on the line, and you know she goes uh, to the king, and uh, you know brings uh, Haman into it, and um, you know asks the king to counteract this plot and, and to spare uh, God's people, and you know the king. Because of the faithfulness of God and because of the unseen hand of God working through a bunch of seeming coincidences to bring this about, he agreed you know, to counteract Haman's plot. Eventually, Haman was killed on the gallows that he had prepared uh, for Mordecai. And so the, the, the plot was thwarted. God protected. God preserved. God took care of his people. But it wasn't because of their faithfulness. Because they were there because of their unfaithfulness. It wasn't because that Esther and Mordecai were spiritual giants. God worked and, you know, they stepped up in in that moment of need. But it was because of the faithfulness of God, the the grace of God, the mercy of God. But it was because God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God that he preserved his people. And that's the story behind the story uh, within the book. I mean, you can look at these human circumstances and these human actors and the things that are happening tangibly in time and space in the physical world like we talked about last week. It was really God's unseen hand that was guiding and ordering and working all these things about. But what I want you to see today is behind God's unseen hand is God's character and what's prompting this. Is his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness. Now, why is this so important to us? Well, it's important probably for a lot of reasons, but there's at least two big ones that I can think of. Number one, um, it's important to us because we're often unfaithful. 
And so then the question becomes, well, you know, how does God respond to that? What does that mean to my life? What does God do uh, when, when that happens? And see, what, part of what I want uh, us to get today if some of you despair when you're unfaithful uh, to the Lord, you feel like, well, God doesn't like me anymore, and God's abandoned me, and I'm in trouble with God. And I want you to understand, when you think that way, you're thinking Old Covenant and not New Covenant, because uh, the Old Covenant was conditional promises based on our obedience. The New Covenant is unconditional blessing based on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God and trusting in that and resting in that. But secondly, I, I think it's, it's really important, you know, that, that we see that, you know, behind what God does, there's who he is. And the Bible talks about the hand of God and the face of God, that the hand of God is a symbol for God's activity. The face of God is a symbol of God's character. And when we understand God's character, we see then that he always works based on that. And so sometimes when life doesn't make sense or when it feels like God's not working or it feels like God's forgotten about us and life's crazy and, you know, life looks like that picture of the connected dots before it all gets connected, if we understand that God is faithful no matter what it looks like on the outside, that really becomes the basis, the foundation, the solid rock of our faith. Why have faith in God? It's because he's faithful. And how he worked then is how he works now. And so he's faith, he was faithful to them even though they were unfaithful, and he's faithful to us even though we're often unfaithful. That's, that's the message. Now, I want to point out three ways that this applies to our lives today. And, and like I said, this is the why behind the what. This is the theology behind uh, the book of Esther, really. And, and so let's look at, at these three ways that, that this applies to our lives. Number one, God is faithful to the Jewish people through the covenant that he made with Abraham. God is faithful to the Jewish people through the covenant that he made with Abraham. That's why he acted the way that he did in this situation, in this circumstance, uh, through Esther, through Mordecai, to deliver his people. Now, what, what is this covenant? Well, let's look at two or three scriptures, and we're just going to hit this part of it quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I want us to have this as a conviction that, that you know, God's chosen people were the Jews, uh, still are uh, the Jews, that God's going to be faithful to them, and that because of that, we should stand with them and support them. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I do want to look at how it more directly applies to us. But let's look at a couple of verses, passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So God gave him a command. He told him to go, but the command is based on several promises, and that's what forms the Abrahamic covenant. The first part of it is a land. He says, I will make you a great nation. That's the second part of the covenant. I will bless you. Blessing is the third part of the covenant. I will make your name great. Uh, that's the fourth part of the covenant. Isn't it pretty amazing that uh, you know, someone who lived thousands of years ago, uh, a, a nomad from the ancient uh, Middle East, uh, is as known as Abraham is uh, today. 
I mean, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all point to Abraham as like the human father of their religion in a lot of ways. I will make your name great. That's being fulfilled even today. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And if you study the history of the nation of Israel, you see the fulfillment of that. And then the last part of it is messianic, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. And God is faithful to that. I mean, think, think about the story. Bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. What happened to Haman? And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Look in Genesis chapter 17. It says, when Abraham, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations notice this for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you and go back to verse 17 for a second please Jacob and just leave it there for a second but if you went back to verse 15 or chapter 15 and you read the story which are not for time's sake when God ratified the covenant with Abraham man, how many of you remember the story what was Abraham doing he was asleep. God put him to sleep. And then God performed this ceremony to show that it was God who was doing it. And that even shows the covenant ultimately is not based on the performance of man. It's based on the faithfulness of God. But he says for an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. And then verse 8, he says, Also to you and your, to your descendants after you, the land in which you were a stranger, all the land of Canaan. And can I just say as an aside that the, all the land of Canaan is a larger area of land than what is actually the sovereign state of Israel today. Okay? Um, so, you know, when you hear all the debates about that in the news and the media and all those kind of things, keep that in mind. Israel does not fully possess yet what God has eternally given to them. They will, but not until Jesus comes back. Uh, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, let's just fast forward to the New Testament quickly. Romans chapter 11. Paul wrote this. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? It's a legitimate question. You know, uh, so many Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Um, you know, when, when I was in Israel a few years ago, I met Jews who were atheists, um, a tour guide, um, a, a taxi driver that took a long taxi ride with because of some travel problems. He's basically an atheist. Now, you know, he believes the land belongs to them, but God's not cast away his people. Uh, because Paul says, certainly not, which is the, uh, the strongest term negation in the Greek language. He says, no way. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then look at verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he 
new. God is faithful to the Jewish people through, you know, all the covenants he's made with them, but particularly, you know, foundationally to the one that he made with Abraham. That's why he intervened then. That's why he's intervening on their behalf now. That's why they're in their own land. Uh, you know, that's why, you know, brought them back there and made them a sovereign nation in 1948. Uh, completely miraculous. No human explanation uh, for it. And, and, you know, historically, the United States was a big part of that. Uh, we we uh, accepted them as a sovereign nation 11 minutes after it happened. President Truman defied many of the people in his cabinet and, 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 and said, you know, we're, we're going to acknowledge Israel a, a, as a sovereign nation. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, we're going to follow through and, and truly, you know, move our embassy to Jerusalem, acknowledging Jerusalem as the true and rightful capital uh, of Israel based on not on what man thinks, but on what God has decreed. God's faithful to his people. He's protecting them from the masses around them that want to destroy them. God has a plan for them. Jesus is going to return and, and rule and reign from uh, Jerusalem. God's people are going to turn back to him. He's not cast away his people whom he foreknew. But the good news is we read on in, in, in Romans that because of their rejection, God is grafted into the, the Gentiles because of their unbelief. And now, you know, in, in the church, uh, you know, we're also God's people as well. And so that leads me to the, to the, the second way this applies. And, uh, you know, this is the main thing really I want us to see for us. And that is that God is faithful to the new covenant that he's made with us in, in Jesus. Now, when, when I talk about the old covenant, what I'm talking about is, um, you know, the, the law, the, the, the sacrificial system, those kind of things. And, um, you know, the, the law, the purpose of it is to show us we're sinners in need of a Savior. It's never given to save us. The, the sacrificial system was never given to bring salvation. It was to show us, uh, you know, the salvation, the sacrifice that Jesus was going to offer. I'm not saying that the moral God, law of God doesn't apply today, but, you know, we don't follow the national laws of Israel that you read in the Old Testament, right? You can't stone your kids, even when you feel like it, okay? Even maybe when they deserve it, you, you can't do that. And say the Bible, you know, says you could do it. That's part of the national law of Israel. But I mean, you know, when we celebrated communion today, you know, we, we did it the New Testament way, you know, juice and a wafer. You know, we didn't, we're not offering up animal sacrifices on the altar here. Why? Because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. We're new covenant Christians. And when we understand that we're under the new covenant, we see that, once again, it's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on the faithfulness of God. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, we're, we're actually going to, it's a short chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter. And I want to spend a few minutes here and just point out some of the differences between the Old Covenant and, and, and the New Covenant so that uh, 
hopefully, you know, this is something to get in our minds and in our hearts. And so the, the next time we mess up, we're not going to feel like we're forsaken by God, but we're going to be reminded that we're under the new covenant and we're going to go back to the cross. And the, the next time that life doesn't make any sense to us and, you know, we wonder if God's forgotten about us, we're going to remember that God settled at the cross, that we're children of God and that he's with us and he's for us and we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And he's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to be faithful to us, not based on our faithfulness, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 8 says, uh, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, in the heavens. In other words, you know, we don't need an earthly priest. Because Jesus Christ is our great high priest, literally, tangibly, in heaven, going to the Father on our behalf. He says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So, saying all this earthly stuff, the old covenant, sacrificial system, all these kind of things, were just a copy of a shadow, a picture. But he's saying the real thing is Jesus Christ. Now, the first five verses of Hebrews 8 is just kind of the setup. Here's the point. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Why well, go back to the old covenant when a new covenant's a better covenant? Right? Verse 7, for if that first covenant would have been had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a, a second. Now understand, there's nothing wrong with the first covenant, the old covenant. Everything that God has done is perfect, but it, it was had fault in it in the sense that it was just temporary. It was never designed to be permanent. Verse 8 says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now, I want you to, as we read these next few verses, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how many times God says, I will. That's key to understanding the whole thing. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, understand, even the new covenant was made you know, with the Jewish people. All the covenants of the Bible are made with the Jewish people. We just, as uh, Gentiles, you know, get grafted in it, get, get to participate in it by the grace of God. This is going to be completely, perfectly fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. But, you know, we share in it now. It says, not according to the covenant that I made uh, with your fathers in the day which I, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, he didn't cast them away, but he disciplined them. We see that over and over again. That's a lot of the story uh, of the Old Testament. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will 
Put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their, and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And then this is how he wraps it all up in verse 13. And then he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Obsolete. In other words, if we're trying to live out of the old covenant, we're going to struggle spiritually because we're trying to live out of something that God's not working in and through anymore. It's obsolete. It's over. It's finished. It's done with. God's doing a new thing. Uh, some of you may remember this. Two or three years ago, I preached a sermon on this passage of Scripture and started the message with showing you a series of pictures. Anybody remember that? I mean, we, we looked at bag phones and rotary dial phones and uh, Pong. You know, we watched a few seconds of that, right? You know, and, and all that stuff, I mean, it's still around. I, I, get, I don't know if you could actually find or use a bag phone anymore. But, I mean, we looked at some other stuff. It's stuff that's still around, but it's obsolete in that newer and better things have replaced it. That's the idea here. Because think about it this way. Here, here's five uh, distinctions between the new covenant and the old covenant quickly. Number one, the new covenant is permanent and complete instead of temporary and limited. It's permanent and complete instead of temporary and, and limited. Number two, and maybe this is the key one. The new covenant is filled with unconditional promises through the grace of Jesus instead of conditional promises based on our obedience. Now, think about the Old Covenant. I mean, think about the law. Think about Deuteronomy. And, you know, you remember those passages where all, there's all these uh, series of, you know, blessings and curses? What was whether or not uh, you were blessed or cursed predicated on? What you did. Whether or not you obeyed, right? And what, what did, well, you know, when God gave them the law, what did they always say? We will follow. We're going to obey. We're going to do everything you tell us to do. What did they always do? They always did the opposite, right? They failed. They disobeyed. What do we always do? I mean, how many times in our lives you vowed something to God? How many times you kept it? How many times you tried to make a deal with God? God, if you'll do this for me, if you'll give me this, if you'll answer this prayer, if, if you'll bail me out of this, if you'll provide this for me, I'll do this, this, and or this. You know what I'm talking about? Is anybody awake? You ever done that before? Um, you understand when we do that, that is completely old covenant thinking. It's obsolete. I mean, if we think that way, act that way, either we're not saved or we're not applying the gospel to our sanctification, which we do a lot. Because not, the gospel just doesn't save us. The gospel is what empowers us spiritually and transforms our lives day in and day out. That, that, the, what we read in Hebrews 8, the point of it is not what we will do. The point of it is what God said, I will do. 
unconditional, his faithfulness, one-sided covenant, his provision for us. So it, it's, not, it's not conditional promises saying, you know, if, if we do this or that, God's going to do this or that. It's, it's unconditional promises. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That's our possession. We can live out of that. It, it, it's the grace of God. It's the finished work of Christ. It, God's not faithful based on how much we obey. God is faithful to us based on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was completely righteous. And on the cross, our unrighteousness was placed on him. His righteousness was given to us. And so now God sees us in Christ, not based on what we do, but based on what what Jesus has done for us. Now, we ought to be able to get happy about that even if we're old and lost an hour of sleep last night and are grumpy this morning. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the faithfulness of God working in our lives. God's unseen hand. He's connecting the dots because behind that is his faithfulness demonstrated through the cross. You see, number three, the new covenant is internal instead of external. It's a new heart. We don't have hearts of stone anymore. We have hearts of flesh. Uh, we're regenerated. We're alive spiritually. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and you see, old covenant people, old covenant churches, everything's based on the externals. Right? You got to do things a certain way. You got to dress a certain way. If you've got a tattoo or something like that, don't come to church. God won't accept you. That's old covenant. It's not based on externals. It's not based on how we look, what our hairstyle is, if you wear a dress, if you wear a head covering. It's not based on what kind of music you play. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, giving us a new heart, and then we can live differently externally because of what he's done in our heart. But it's inside out. It's not outside in. God's not saying do this or that or change this or look a certain way or conform to what religious people think. It's about what Jesus does on the inside of us. That's what makes us new. You see, it's the difference between religion and the gospel. It's the difference between religion and true biblical Christianity. And if you've ever been in a church that harbored on all the externals, you know there's no life there. There's death there. You know there's not freedom there. There's bondage there. Why? Because everything that they're focused on is obsolete. God's not working there. The Spirit of God is working in and through the gospel, through the new covenant. That's where there's life. That's where there's freedom. That's where there's hope. That's where there's power. We can live more faithfully the more we see the faithfulness of God instead of externally us trying to be faithful in our own power. That's where we mess up. Okay? The new covenant is a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ instead of some kind of human mediator. We don't go to him through a high priest or any kind of priest. He is our high priest. You know, we don't get to God through a temple because Jesus is our temple. We don't get to God through the Passover because he is our Passover lamb who was slain for all the sins of the world or maybe to make it more relevant to us. We don't get to God through a religious ritual or through a preacher or through a church building. Anywhere we are, anytime we have direct and immediate access to God, the way has been made open. The veil has been torn in two through the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. And so we can call on his name. Hebrews 10 says we can come to him with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't, a lot of times we're afraid to pray because uh, Satan accuses us and reminds us of everything we've done wrong. And we think about how unfaithful we've been in all the ways that we've sinned. Well, the next time Satan's accusing you, you remind him that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you remind him that even though you've been unfaithful, God is completely faithful to you. And he was defeated on the cross. And Jesus cleansed you from all of your sin. And you're a child of God. And you have a righteous standing before God. And you have an open invitation to come into his presence. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you've done. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then the new covenant is complete forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus instead of a picture through the sacrificial system. That's the point of the whole thing. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament for just a second. Zechariah chapter 3. I know we're looking at a lot of scripture, but like I said, we're not going to preach a moralistic version of Esther. We're going to preach a gospel version of Esther. This is the story behind the story, and this is the story behind the story of our lives as well. Zechariah chapter 3. This is how it manifests itself in our lives. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and Satan standing on his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Remember that. It's not our faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of God. We're brands plucked from the fire. We're clothed in clean garments through the blood of Jesus Christ. Even though that's not who we are in ourselves, that's who we are in Christ. God is completely faithful to the new covenant that he made with us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Base your spiritual life, base your life on that. Okay, but then there's one other way this applies. And um, this, this may seem a little strange to you. It may seem like a kind of a weird juxtaposition with what I was just talking about because, I, you know, I hope you're encouraged, you know, uh, by what we were just talking about. But I hope you see, even if it doesn't sound like it at first, by the, by the time we're done with this point uh, in the next five or ten minutes, that uh, this is encouraging too. Part of what we see from the book of Esther is that God is faithful to punish his enemies. God is faithful to punish his enemies. Think about it. Esther chapter 7. Haman built, built gallows to hang Mordecai on. And Haman was hung on them. Why? Well, you can look at the human circumstances and all that we talked about last week. But the reason behind the, what happened, the story behind the story, is that God, part of his faithfulness, is he's faithful to punish his enemies. Because he's just, and he's righteous, and he's holy. You know, th- these people uh, who had agreed to go along with this plot, 
Thousands of them were killed by the Jews as a part of protecting them. Now you say, well, what does that mean to us today? Well, I, I want to show you three things that this is a doctrine of. First of all, it's a doctrine of consolation. It's a doctrine of consolation. You say, well, how, how can that be? You're talking about punishment and judgment and people being killed and, and God dealing with How can this be a doctrine of consolation? Well, hear me out for a minute. Look at a couple of scriptures first, and then I'll explain what I'm saying. Romans 12, 19. God says, don't avenge yourselves. Why? Because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Look at Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 16. And, uh, you know, in, 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 during the tribulation period that talks about the book of Revelation, you know, people who turn to Christ are going to be persecuted. They're going to be martyred. And so in, in that context, it says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood, part of the judgments uh, of that time. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord. The one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So how is it a doctrine of consolation? You ever... From your heart, cried out, life's not fair. I can't believe what people are getting away with. I, I can't believe these awful things that people are doing. And, and it seems like, you know, the more wicked people are, the better they're doing. You, you ever said thought stuff like that? That's the answer to this. Nobody's getting away with anything. God is faithful to punish his enemies. God is just and righteous and holy, and he's going to deal with sin. See, here's why some people have a problem with God or why some people want to reinvent God in their own image. It's like God doesn't have a chance with a lot of people because there's people who cry out, and God, why can you let things be so bad on the earth? And then they turn around when somebody talks about God's judgment and say, oh, God's a loving God. He can never judge anybody. Can I just tell you the point of this is you can't have it both ways. Listen to me. Every murder, every abortion, every genocide, every school shooting, all God is going to deal with all sin and evil. Either people are going to repent and his wrath will be absorbed by the sacrifice of Christ, or they're going to experience the wrath of God in hell forever and ever. But can I tell you the other problem we have with this? Some people are like, yeah, God, go get those really evil people who have done those really bad things. But they miss the fact that that's all of us. Because... You know, we tend to compartmentalize or grade sin and think, you know, other people's sin are worse than ours, but all sin, I'll quote Will Roach, it's a great quote, all sin is an assault against the throne of God. All sin is rebellion against him. It's what R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason. It's in our, us and our pride trying to be our own God, and it's, a, and it's an affront to a holy God. So here's the thing. 
God's not going to deal with just the sin of murderers and rapists and child molesters and all these terrible people. Out there. He's going to deal with our sin as well. And so I say that to say that, number two, that this is a doctrine of challenge. It challenges us. Listen to John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That means it's on you now and will stay on you forever if you don't believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, uh, to give you a troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But then the last thing I want you to see is this is not only a doctrine of consolation and a doctrine of challenge. It's a doctrine of of conversion. Because you say, here's the question, God's faithful to punish his enemies. Well, who are God's enemies? Well, the Bible t tells us that our sin places us at enmity with God. Our sins separate us from God, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. James 4, 4 says, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. So if we've sinned, We've put ourselves in enmity with God. But here's the good news. I want to read a couple more passages of Scripture just to conclude. Colossians 1, starting in verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him, talking about Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, by Jesus, through his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. What does the cross do? We've separated ourselves from God by our sin. We've made ourselves the enemies of God by rebelling against him, by committing treason against him, by going our own way. But through the cross of Christ, there's peace with God. There's reconciliation with God. We can be brought back into oneness and relationship with him again. Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 6, puts it this way. Check if you have Romans 5, 6. It says, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So I want to ask you two questions to close. First one is this. Are you an enemy of God? Or are you the friend of God? What's the distinction? The distinction is how you've responded to the gospel. If you're rejecting Jesus Christ, I don't care how moral you are, I don't care how good you are, 
outwardly. According to the word of God, God's definition of you is you're his enemy. But you know, the good news is Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. That's the gospel. That's how much he loves us. That even while we were sinners, even though we had gone our own way, done our own thing, lived for ourselves, that Jesus loved us so much that he came and died for us, that he bore all of our sins. And today, if you'll repent and turn to him in faith, you can be reconciled to God, be forgiven, become a child of God, be a friend of God. And he invites you to do that today. And then the second question would be is, if you're a Christian, are you basing your spiritual life on how faithful you try to be to the Lord? Or are you basing your spiritual life on how faithful God is to you. Because the good news is, God is faithful, even when we're unfaithful. And the harder we try to be faithful on our own, the more unfaithful and the more frustrated we're going to be. But the more we claim and rest in the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more faithfully we'll be able to live for Him because our life and our beliefs are rooted not in what we can do, but in what he's already done for us and how faithful he is to us. Isn't that really good news that God's faithful even when we're unfaithful? And this afternoon or tomorrow when you and I blow it, that God still loves us. He's still faithful to us. We're still, uh, you know, in his covenant. He's still going to keep his promises. We can repent. We can turn back to him. We can continue to walk with him. We're going to be a child of God. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. Let's rest in that, hope in that, rely on that, live through that. That's the basis of the Christian life. Let's pray.